and never limit yourself. And when opportunity is out there, take it. And the other thing I would say is let your leadership know that you're available. Just because you might be working 40 hours on a client somewhere, make sure your leadership knows that you've got more time. This is the Indian Nest Podcast, stories of success from leaders and change makers of Indian origin. Why have Indians achieved success across so many different disciplines around the globe? I have no idea, but let's find out together because every story is unique. I'm very excited to have Ravi Puri with us today. No relation. He's the chief portfolio officer for Capgemini, which is a very large consulting firm. He's also been in C-level positions with large consulting organizations like IBM, Accenture, and has served on many corporate boards and advises companies on digital transformation and other areas. I invited him on the show because he has a unique window into C-level decision-making in large companies globally. And I'm really fascinated to find out how are these companies tackling the transformative impact of artificial intelligence, especially generative AI, because it has some amazing opportunities for everybody, but it also has a lot of implications for the workforce and across the board. Besides that, he also has a fascinating personal background, which I will let him tell you. Welcome, Ravi Puri. It's an absolute pleasure to have you on our podcast. Well, thank you, Sanjay. It's a pleasure to be here and look forward to the discussion. Wonderful. Yavi, I mentioned that you have a unique and an unconventional background. Can you just walk us through your journey up to now? Where were you born, siblings, etc.? Well, sure. So I was born in Atlanta, Georgia, first generation. My father immigrated from India in the late 1950s. He was originally born in Sialkot, India, which became Pakistan. And so after independence, the family relocated into India. My mother's family immigrates from Scandinavia. And so my parents met in the United States in the early 60s. And the rest is history. That's pretty fascinating. So you had a very, well, I wouldn't say unconventional because, you know, this is United States. It's the melting pot, etc. When you were growing up, were there any thoughts on changing your name to make it more Americanized or anything like that so that people would have an easier task? Because a lot of people do that. Nothing wrong with that. Yeah, it was a thought at one point, but my name is my father's name. And so in honor of him, I, I wanted to, to keep it that way. I've got two siblings. My older sibling is Krishan Kumar. He shortened his name to Chris, and that seemed to work pretty well. My younger sister's name is Tisha Devi, and she shortened her name to Tish. It was really hard to shorten the name Ravi to anything other than that. But since it was my father's name, I felt real closeness to it and wanted to, to keep it the way it is. And I think over time, it was the right decision because I think there's probably just as many Ravis in America as they are in India now. That's true. That is so true. Ravi, what were some of the defining moments growing up? I'm sure there were pressures to, for education. You had siblings, sibling rivalry. Can you just tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, well, you know, I was not the firstborn in an Indian family, and so I didn't get a new pair of clothes until I'd outgrown my brother in high school, and then I could start getting my own new clothes. I had to eat my meals quickly because my older brother was bigger and faster, so if I wanted to, to have a full meal, I needed to get to dinner on time and, and eat fast. We were also very competitive on the athletic field, so I, I was always being pushed to run faster and be stronger. I think that's just the nature of having an older brother that one is very competitive with. 
And for the most part, I kept up with him. But the one area of competition where to this day, I still haven't been able to beat him intellectually. He was a straight A student. He graduated high school a year early. He did his dual degree program in college at Georgia Tech and did very well there, went on for his master's. And he's had an extremely successful career. On the other hand, I didn't make straight A's, but I passed and then went on to, to each grade. And it wasn't until I got into college that I, I think I got more serious about school and, of course, you know, did well in college and then in, in grad school and post-grad school. But when it comes to intellectual thinking and debating important matters, he seems to always win those conversations even today. So he definitely has the trophy on that. And I guess that's fine. I have a feeling if we had him on the podcast, he would say the same thing about you. Really. You haven't done, been too shabby as far as your success is concerned. Was there any pressure that you need to go into medicine or engineering or anything like that? Great questions. Yes. My father is a physicist, and I was taught at a very young age that I needed to obtain my doctorate degree, whether it was an MD or PhD. And so the story goes, when I took physics in high school, I think I made a C plus or maybe a B minus. And that's with a physicist father who was tutoring me the whole way through. And at that point, my dad said, you know, you probably should go to business school because <laughs> 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 you, you're going to have to understand the sciences, whether it's just not biology or chemistry or, or those things, but, but physics as well. So at the end of the day, I entered college as a business major, of course, got my MBA and then my postgrad from Harvard. I mean, all in business. It, it was the right advice. I don't think anybody knew me any better than my dad. But the good news is, is I married a medical doctor. So we do have a medical doctor in, in the family. So he's very happy about that. That's wonderful. That's fantastic. Ravi, you always been in Atlanta all your life? Born and raised in Atlanta. It is home. I'm home on the weekends mostly. During the week, I'm usually traveling somewhere in the world. And if it's an international trip, then it'll, of course, it'll take up the weekend. But for the most part, I try to be home like today's a Friday. I'm actually home today and tomorrow. Sunday, I'm leaving for an eight-day trip. It'll be a Sunday to Sunday trip. Those are kind of tough. But, you know, that's how it works in this business. You must have seen Atlanta change quite a bit from a small town to what it has been. And was it difficult early on? When you were there, you know, being maybe an immigrant in some ways, because you're American, you're Indian, you're Norwegian, etc. Yeah, so Atlanta has grown about tenfold in the last 50 or so years. I mean, I think we're five, six million now, and we were just a few hundred thousand in the late 1970s. So I think for me, since I was born and raised in the South, and I sound Southern, that was helpful. Most people mistook me for an Italian or, or a Greek. They had no clue I was Indian and Scandinavian. However, many people growing up asked me if I had been on the golf course lately or been to the beach because of my skin color. I always wondered why they said that, because I was born with the skin color. I, I don't have to lay out in the sun or go play golf in, in order to have a tan. This is a natural tan. And so it took me a while to learn why people were asking me that. I then had my next revelation when my father would come to school with me and people would ask me who the guy was with me because my father looked like you, Sanjay. And, you know, and in the 1970s, there weren't Indian children in our schools in Atlanta. The rare Indians that we had in Atlanta were our physicians, you know, and our 
business owners and uh, a few lawyers and things of that nature. But certainly there were not interracial marriages, if you will, that had that in a great number. So it was hard for me to be exposed to people that thought that I was different than them. It was even more hurtful when people would say things about my dad, about him, is, is he not your dad? That kind of thing. And I never was raised in a, an environment where I saw skin color and those things. I just saw people for their differences and celebrated them on whether they were people that looked like me or didn't look like me or sounded like me or didn't sound like me. So it took a while to get through that. I think in my early career, I was viewed differently. I can remember early in my career being in meetings and people would say, has anybody seen this fellow, Ravi Puri, who was supposed to be in this meeting? Obviously, people I had met before, if I was new to a meeting, and I would say, well, I'm right here. And I said, oh, well, we were expecting an Indian guy because that's an Indian name. And I'm like, well, you got him. You've got the Indian guy with the Indian name I'm right here, right? And so that was the best way that I knew how to respond to people that just weren't aware, if you will, that they should have been. But I think now, and it's 2023, with everything going on, I think for the most part, people see a guy like me with an Indian name, they're like, well, okay, the, the guy must be Indian or who knows what they think, but I don't get those questions anymore. It's more on the reverse. When I'm in India, you know, checking into a hotel and I have to give the U.S. passport, people look at me and say, do you realize that you have an Indian name? And I'm like, yes, I, I do. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> so whether it's here or there, it doesn't matter where it is, right? But when I'm in Western Europe, nobody asks anything. There's like, thank you for your business and go about your way kind of thing. <laughs> That's true. But when all of this was happening, like when you were going to school with your dad and people would ask you, how did you and your dad deal with that? Was that challenging or made you even stronger? Or well, It was during a time of the civil rights movement in Atlanta. And one reason why my parents chose Atlanta to be home is because of the civil rights movement. It was the only city in the South that a mixed-race couple could be married in at that time, legally married. And so we had many civil rights leaders that were prominent in the city, and we lived in the city, so it was a little bit easier and safer for us to navigate and go places and do things like that. So I think we handled it as well as we could. I think it just took time for Atlanta and the South to become more aware of the diversity that we have in all of our people, which of course now it's a very metropolitan city. But if my father ever struggled with any of it, he certainly never showed it. And I was just taught to be tolerant of people and expect the best. Tolerant of people and expect the best. That's a great advice. Is your father still alive, Ravi? Unfortunately, no. He was 85 years old. He unfortunately was exposed to COVID. He was in good health. But for some, you know, when you're 85 and you get COVID, it doesn't really go that well. So we lost him tragically, actually on my birthday two years ago. And it's nothing that you can ever deal with, get over with or understand. So we celebrate his life. We live according to his wishes. And we know that we'll be with him again one day. We're not going to rush, rush to that day, but we certainly know that he's enjoying himself with his father, which is my dada. We will all be Drinking hot tea and eating samosas, I guess, in about 40 years or 50 years when it's my time to go. Well, sorry to hear about him and may God bless his soul. But you were pretty close to your dad, right? From what I can gather, listening to you. Very close. There is not a greater man that's ever walked the planet than him, and there never will be. And I'm fortunate and grateful to have been blessed to have a father like him. And he will always be part of who I am. There's never a time when 
I'm not thinking about him, what he would do in a situation, the advice that he would give. Wow. You know, as someone who lost his father, my dad was 92 a few years ago, but coming from you, and I think some of the reason for your success is the bond that you had and the character that your dad would be very proud, I say this objectively, of the man and the person that you are. Maybe I'll shift topics a little bit just so that we can get on there. Ravi, your title is Chief Portfolio Officer. For our audience who might not be aware of that, including me, can you just give us a brief idea? What does a Chief Portfolio Officer do? It does many things, and it's different for different companies. But for Capgemini, the Chief Portfolio Officer represents the organization that helps build the content which is taken to the market. So it's the go-to-market content, the offering content, the taxonomy of the offerings that are sold, as well as the liaison into the delivery organization to ensure that what we are building and selling is deliverable and can drive the business outcomes of an organization. We also work very closely with our partners in the ecosystem, whether they're hyperscalers or tier one OEM software providers cloud providers. We're also very involved in the due diligence of evaluating assets and targets for tuck-ins and acquisitions on the business side of the house. And we are also very involved in some of our larger deals or more complex deals. We're very involved in our what we call our campaigns, where we are driving preemptive services into the market to be hyper-competitive and to show differentiators against our worthy adversaries in the market. And so it's just wrapped up in being a people and client-centric organization. We're servant-led. Our job is not to own the P&L and not to tell people what to do, but to be the enablers and the people that help attain the performance and the accelerated business outcomes that we want for our clients. It seems like a pretty important thing for a company like Capgemini, which is a huge, huge company. Ravi, you've worked all your life from what I can see for mainly consulting firms whether it's an IBM, Accenture, entity, et cetera. How did you get into the consulting world? Well, I got into the consulting business because I failed at medicine. <laughs> physics. <So>. Physics. <laughs> in fact, I went to college as a business major, but I realized in my first year in college that everybody was taking the same four classes. And I said, if that's the case, I probably could switch into medicine and see if I could make my dad happy by maybe surprising him that maybe it's going to work out now. And so I took all those four classes, but then when I got to organic chemistry, that's when things became too difficult for my brain power. And then college level physics was even tougher. So at that point, those just became my electives and I still went through the business route. And so when I was looking at business, my opportunities were to work in the private equity world, investment capital, banking, financial services, or in management or business consulting. I had all my interviews as a, a senior in college. I had multiple offers, and I chose the offer to go into management consulting at Pricewaterhouse because I generally just was very enthusiastic about the work. The people that were from that firm were very interesting and very smart. It was to join the strategy practice, and I really felt that was the path forward. I discussed all these options and opportunities with my dad. He ultimately said it was my decision, but he said the minute I graduated, I was off payroll, so I needed to make the right decision. Because <laughs> uh, he's like, there's no redos, there's no fifth year, there's no gap year, there's no year in Europe on a bicycle. 
There's nothing like that. So you need to make the decision and move on with it. <laughs> so that's how it happened. Well, you're very humble too. Ravi, all our guests generally, I miss almost all our guests when they come in, they talk about the role of mentors that have helped them achieve success. Have mentors played any role in your career at all? Yeah. So when I got into consulting, my mentor was a gentleman named Reese Chappelle. And in fact, we just lost him at age 87 in September, which was a big blow. He was my first boss in consulting. I'm not sure how it happened, but when I got into consulting at the firm, I was placed on a project where he was the big managing partner over the account. And between himself and myself were probably 20 levels of people. However, he lived in Atlanta. We took the same flights to the same clients. He did not like to drive a vehicle, so I was his driver. And I loved it because I got to hear all of his conference calls in the car. He was issued a laptop, and we're talking this is the early 90s. He was issued a laptop, but he didn't want to use it. So when we got to the client site on Monday, he would pull out his printed emails that had been FedExed to his home over the weekend. He would handwrite responses. He would tell me to proofread his responses and fax them to his secretary, which I did. Well, when the weekend came, he'd get, and say, well, secretary would, I guess she would answer his emails electronically or something. And then on Saturday, he'd get his FedEx pack at home. And on Monday, we would do this time and time again. And I got to learn the consulting business with his permission, reading his emails, faxing them to his secretary. He would handwrite his slides and give them to me to fax to a secretary, at which time I learned if I just learned PowerPoint, I could do them myself. So I learned PowerPoint, and then I began doing his slides for him sitting next to him. And what an amazing experience to sit next to a managing partner doing his slides next to him, listening to his phone calls that he knew I was listening to, and then taking notes for him, going to C-level meetings and taking notes for him and that sort of thing. And so it allowed me to learn the business at a rapid race. He would even have me go to his dinner meetings and sit there and listen, take notes. The next day, remind him of everything that he agreed to that he didn't write down (laughs) and so on and so forth. And so by the age of 33, I made partner in the firm. I'm one of the youngest people to make partner. And that's just because I think when you spend a lot of time with the decision makers and they're looking for people to promote that have the skill sets. They do that. So in my case, I don't think I was any smarter or any better than the next person. I just think that I was in the right place at the right time. I was able to obtain the knowledge and the training and the experience quicker and faster than others. At this stage in the game of 30 years in the business, every one of my peers that I joined the firm with that is still in the firm, they're where I am as well now. They eventually got to this level. So I just got there quicker. And so Reese was a mentor the entire way through. He retired from consulting at about 20 years for me. Now I've got 30. The eight years he was alive in retirement, we spoke every week. There wasn't a big decision I made without talking with him about it. For the last two years, he was not really in a capacity to to have those conversations with, but I was with him on his last day when he took his last breath. And he will forever be the kind of coach and mentor that, you know, that I hope to be for others myself. So, Ravi, one of the reasons that we do this podcast is for others who are looking at you as to what is the 
and how can they be who you are or get to the success that you have. Mentorship, as you have pointed out, is very important. And the lessons in there were you're ready to put in the hard work. You are in the right place at the right time. Is there any other lesson that our audience can take? Because that was pretty important for your success, right? Yeah, it's a great question. And of course, our daughter is in her third year at Accenture and their strategy practice. And I've given her a lot of advice on how to be successful, which is part of your question. I think there's a few things. The first thing is this career assumes that you accept that you're working all the time, all the time. This is not a nine to five job, Monday to Friday. I work and we work all the time because we work in different time zones and we always have to be ready. Clients like it when you answer an email at midnight, our time when it might be 6 a.m. in in London uh, and they're already at the office. Or if it's nine o'clock in California and they're working late and it's midnight in Atlanta and I've responded to the email. Also, there's this strange concept we have in consulting now where resources think that they have the opportunity to pick the projects that they want to go on. Well, you know, guess what? The firm operates for profit. And sometimes the leaders of the firm need to deploy the resources that they feel are going to be best on whatever engagement that's out there. So my advice to everybody is don't tell us where you want to work and what you want to do. We'll be happy to listen to it. But we know a thing or two about the business, and we are going to align our capabilities with the requirements of our clients. And so that means be open to any and all assignments. Don't restrict yourself and say, I only want to work in the manufacturing industry and supply chain on projects in the Southeast. A person needs to say, I'm a sponge. I'm willing to learn everything. If there's something that you like doing, such as supply chain manufacturing in the Southeast, well, then you can tell us. We have plenty of work in that space. And when your credentials align to those requirements, we'll put you there. But you know what? You may have some cold winters in Minneapolis. You may not be in Miami in the winter. You may have some assignments where you're taking two or three airplanes and then a two-hour drive to get to the client. You may have assignments overseas where you're gone for three weeks at a time, but you know that's our business and that's our industry. And if you're willing to make those sacrifices, then you could go very far in this career. Now, I would say post-pandemic, the world's changed a bit. We're doing more remote work. It's more hybrid workforce. I think that for people that are getting into our industry now, or that are in it already are seeing some of the benefits of technology like we're doing right now, which is really great. But you never know what's going to happen in the world. And so be prepared to get back on those airplanes. Be prepared to do some of those things and never limit yourself. And when opportunity is out there, take it. And the other thing I would say is let your leadership know that you're available. Just because you might be working 40 hours on a client somewhere, Make sure your leadership knows that you've got more time and make that time. And you say, you know what? I'm billing 40 hours a week on this client, but you know, I'd like to work 10 more hours on business development. I'd like to help read your slides. I'd like to help proofread your SOWs. I'd like to look at some proposals that you're working on. I just want to expand my knowledge base. Can you send me deliverables on that engagement, which is six months ahead of the one I'm on so I can see what we're going to? You know, ask what you can do to help. Ask to go to conferences. 
asked to sit in on important meetings, asked to be a shadow, right? Asked to take notes in a workshop. Do anything and everything that you can to expose yourself to as much as early as you can. This will enable you to do well in this career. Those are great advices. 24 by 7 kind of a, a job. Be flexible and then try to go beyond your current role and reach out for other opportunities. I think those are great messages, Ravi. You have worked with organizations that have large footprint in India too. I mean, most of them, in whether it's development or et cetera. And so you must have had some view in there. How do you view the talent and potential of India? I mean, from whatever your viewpoint is. Yeah, that's a great question. So if you look at the large consulting firms, Capgemini, Accenture, and, and others, I mean, at least half or maybe more than half of our total headcount live and work in India. It is a superpower country. It is a superpower region. I have found that there are incredibly smart and talented people all over the world, including India. Mm -hmm. India is not any smarter than any other country, nor is any country any smarter than India. The thing that I find in India is that it's one time zone. <laughs> it's one time zone. And it's easy to work with a billion people in one time zone because in the United States, it's many. In Europe, it's many. And when you're trying to wrestle a tough business across regions, oh, it's so much more nice when it's one time zone in the entire country. The Indian culture that I'm from is one that personally I assimilate very easy to. I find it very easy to work with over half of our workforce in that country of India. Having a traditional Punjabi name for me works very well because people can connect with a person that's from their part of the world as well. Find that the we do find that from an educational perspective, the highest educational credentials are in India. And that's not to put any other country down. It's just to say that, you know what, India has the highest credentialed and educated people on the planet. It's just where it is. And so when you have that type of mind power and brain power, you can do pretty amazing things. Uh, the work ethic is very strong in India. And we find that, unfortunately, life balance is not where it needs to be. I am constantly trying to work with our brothers and sisters in India to not work so hard to try to take time for family, try to get the work-life balance, try to do some of those things. But I, some of our workers in India think that if they don't work that hard or that long, they're not doing something right. And I've tried to instill a culture and a management system into our workforce that says, we don't expect you to be superhuman. We just expect you to be like us and do the work within the time frame allotted have your work-life balance with your family and your faith and your activities, and you'll be a much happier, much more productive person for that. So that's taken some coaching uh, as well to do that. Well, that's great to hear that the talent is obviously amazingly there. That brings me to the question that in the introductory session I talked about, chat GPT, large language models are really sweeping for the past six months or more. You interface lot with C-level execs, whether it's uh, from a consulting or other standpoint. There have been a lot of reports. OECD just came out with a report that 27% of the workforce is going to be impacted. What are the things that you're hearing from the C-level or the board suite regarding AI or things of that nature? Yeah, it's a good question. So from the C-suite at the large enterprise level, 
No one's really sure yet about how to apply AI because we haven't seen the use cases for it to where it will remove labor, remove cost, and generate the outcomes that we want to have generated at a level of trust to where we can sort of let it run intelligently. It's just not there yet. Generative AI, productive AI, living in the mid-market, living in social media, living in high transaction manual labor processes with a ton of redundancy that's prone to error. Yes, there's some value there. And we're already doing that. But AI is one of those things where as humans, I think we are expecting it to do far more than it can do today. Within five or six years, I think it'll get to that point. We're going to have to be very careful that as AI becomes able to learn that those that are teaching it are teaching it from a positive point of view, not from a negative or nefarious or dark point of view. But unfortunately, like anything, I think there's going to be those two sides of it. I think the jury's out when it comes to enterprise level use cases. We and many organizations are investing billions of dollars in this space to preempt the market and to be first to time to value on them. And so it will unfold in time. Like any other technology, this is the next wave. It will happen. We're confident of it. Those of us that are leaders in this space are prepared for it. There's a lot of smaller niche firms which are moving very quickly. Those will be acquired and assimilated into the larger firms very quickly. So it's really a matter of time. The C-suite understands that it's going to be another technology tool and mechanism to drive an outcome. It's not going to be an outcome in and of itself. It'll live as a horizontal solution, not a verticalized one. I think we're all going to you know, see acceleration in 24 and beyond. Well, that's good to know for our listeners who are worrying about their jobs and business opportunities. I think that's a good feedback. Ravi, listening to you, somebody who's had an entire career in consulting, I'm just tempted to ask, if you were not doing this, what would you be doing if you were not doing consulting? Not physics, not medicine. If I was not doing consulting, I would own a Mercedes franchise dealership. Wow. I've not yep. heard that answer before. I've not heard that. I've yep. heard a lot of different answers. Well, Daimler's been a huge client for most of my career. I own their products. I love their products. I love the art of the deal. I would love to own a dealership. I mean, rather than negotiating a $100 million consulting deal, it's just as fun to negotiate a $200,000 car because it's the people interaction. People interaction. It, it's the people. To own a franchise dealer and to go in a few hours a day and do a few deals and have those conversations, to me, would be exciting. I'd have a robust service department because you're really making the money on service, service. not some sales. I love the deal process. And a car dealership represents, if you will, every aspect, all the human emotions. It brings in the financing, the products, safety, the experience. It's all contained under one roof and it's concentrated. That's what I would love to do. Just as someone who's bought cars, including Mercedes, when they say, let me go to the manager and see if I can work this thing, that's the part I hate the most. And that's what Tesla has tried to get us out. There is no manager going, but that's the part you love the most. The part I love the most is when the deal. Everything, everything's been exhausted and the client is ready to walk. I want to be that last conversation that closes that deal. That's what I like to do. That's fantastic. Maybe when I come to Atlanta, I might see you at some point 
in an electric Mercedes dealership because that's where the trends are happening for sure. Tell me, we do this lightning round of questions. You know, these are short questions with just asking you for one or two sentences feedback from you. What is your definition of Indianness? Because that's our podcast. That's what our whole thing is. What is your definition? I think my answer would be really anyone which has a true passion for driving pleasant and positive outcomes and experiences in life. I mean, whether it's through business or personal relationships or whatever it may be, I find that of all the cultures and customs on the planet, they all have their uniqueness. I simply think that the Indian culture is one which is, to me, the most peaceful, the most loving, the most kind, the most forgiving, the most accommodating. If you look at how Gandhi took a billion people and never fired a single shot in Freedom Nation, I mean, who has ever done that? And my dada was his friend and was with him as he did that. My dada, which is grandfather, was one of the first Indian officers in the British Army as a civil engineer. Oh. One of the first Indians that became an officer in the British Army. I just think that's Indianness, the ability to transcend boundaries, to overcome them, and to be super successful in any environment whatsoever. That to me is what it is. That's a great answer. Great answer. You have great family lineage with your father and with your grandfather. So that's fantastic. So this is a question, if I left it open, I know what the answer would be. So I'm going to say, who's the one living person? Living person is the key because I know if I left that open, what the answer In India or Indian origin, that really inspires you. I think that, I mean, I can't name any family members, obviously, in this. No, no, ne- no nepotism. I would say that my hero, Indian, is the Prime Minister of England. Can you imagine an Indian, the Prime Minister of England? Would you have ever have thought that in your lifetime or my lifetime? Would have never, ever have imagined that. But that's what we have today. Rishi Shona. He is an amazing gentleman. I love to see what he's doing with that country. I love to see that he's the leader of it. I look forward to the day when we can do that in the United States. Great. That's a very helpful. Final closing question for you, Ravi. What would be the advice you would give your younger self, 20 years, 30 years? What would you say to Ravi Puri, who's 20 years ago? I think the advice I'd give to my younger self is stay at IBM. There's no reason to move. There's no reason to move. (laughs) Right. I miss IBM tremendously. I loved it. I was there for the longest part of my career and absolutely loved it. But for some reason, I thought the grass was greener at other places. And I learned that the grass wasn't greener at other places. It was still grass, but it was just a different type of grass, like an apple, an orange, or a peach. It's all good fruit. And as I look back over my career, I'm very happy with Accenture and Capgemini and other firms. But at the end of the day, the differences are very small. The differences are very small. I thought there'd be big differences in these competitor firms because because when you're inside the firm and you're articulating differentiators and value propositions against the other firms to the client, they appear to be vast. 
But since I've worked in all these firms, they're not vast. That's just marketing. I didn't know that. I sort of bought into that, if you will. Now I realize that we're all very hyper-competitive. We're all full of very smart people. At the end of the day, we find that we as executives can navigate from one firm to the next. The CEO of Capgemini Americas is a former colleague of mine from Accenture. That's what he is. The head of Cognizant, Ravi Kumar, was the president of Infosys. I mean, we all move around. My wife, she's a medical doctor. She specializes in hearts. She can't go work on brains, but she can't do that. But I can go work at all these firms. That's the difference. So to answer the question is, what I know now today, I just stay at IBM and keep doing what I was doing, what I was doing there. <laughs> you know, it's it totally fine. That's true. Well, I hope your colleagues at Gemini and Accenture are not listening, but even if they are, that's okay. Well, if they are, they probably were with me at IBM too. So they understand, <laughs> right? <laughs> so it's a game of musical chairs in some way. Right. Yeah. Well, thank you, Ravi. This has been really, really helpful, incredible. I'm sure our listeners are going to find tremendous value. Your humility and insight is really helpful. Thank you so much for being on the podcast. Thank you, Sanjay. Anytime. Appreciate it. Thank you for listening to the Indianist Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a five-star review and subscribe to enjoy future inspirational stories.